Welcome to the Dollar Sprout Podcast, where it's all about building a business that offers consistent income and flexibility so you can live life on your terms. And now, your host, Megan Robinson. Hey guys, and welcome to the show. It's Ben stepping in for Megan today. Today's show, I'm actually going to be joined by Jeff Proctor. Jeff is my business partner and the co-founder of Dollar Sprout. And we wanted to spend a few minutes today talking a little bit about a subject that's actually kind of near and dear to our hearts, and that is blogging. Blogging is the exact side hustle that Jeff and I have been kind of hacking our way around for the last seven years or so now. And it, it's kind of allowed us to gain our own level of, of lifestyle independence, so to speak. I know that this has been a central theme for the, for the podcast for the last six or seven weeks now, and I, we'd love to, to kind of keep it that way going forward. But like I said, for, for blogging, uh, there's been a lot that has changed over the last seven years. And, and in our Facebook group, we, we constantly get questions about whether or not is it still worth it? you know, what, what has changed? Can you still make money blogging? And Jeff and I just wanted to take a few minutes today to talk about the ways that blogging has changed over the years, the ways that it's still exactly the same, kind of the challenges that we face on a day in and day out basis and what we try to do anyways, to, uh, to overcome those challenges, uh, to kind of continue this, again, this, this lifestyle that we have kind of embarked upon and, and in terms of, of, creating a business that can support financially the, the dreams that we have. So like I said, without further ado, I'm going to invite Jeff to, to hop on here. How are you doing, Jeff? Hey, good to see you. <laughs> I know. Ben and I talk like every day, so this is kind of funny. Yeah, I know. It's not, it's not every day that we sit here and actually record ourselves having this sort of conversation, but we thought it would be cool just to, to spend a few minutes again talking about the, the things that we've really learned over the last few years, especially the last year or two mm -hmm. in particular, I think there's been a lot of changes in the blogging landscape that are worth noting and what we can do to help basically prospective bloggers or even bloggers that, that might already have a blog and they're struggling to gain a little bit of traction, what kind of share our insights into to how you might be able to overcome those hurdles and, and go from there. But anyways, I'm going to let Jeff give just like a 20 second or maybe a 30 second overview of, of where, you know, who we are, where we came from and how we got to where we are right now. So if you don't mind, Jeff, just kind of sharing our blogging yeah. journey and then just yeah, bring so, us up to speed. Yeah, we would start in 2015. So when we started, it's 2022 now. So yeah, about seven years ago. And Basically, it just started as a uh, personal finance blog. We were writing articles on our website and getting traffic from, and this is like a super condensed version, but we were writing about different side hustles, ways to make extra money, like how to invest, how to save, all that kind of stuff. And to get traffic to our site, we were using social media a lot back then. And Pinterest was a big one that we used to get people to our site. And once we had people on the site, we had advertisements running on our site and whether that's display ads or like affiliate advertisements, which is basically you get a commission on any sales that you generate. So let's say I want to sell you a water bottle for $10 and you buy it from Amazon and we get a dollar of that or whatever. So we would do that for, for offers within, you know, the finance space. So yeah, that's basically like how we started. And then it took a long time for us to finally get some traction, get people coming to the site regularly and signing up for offers and doing all that stuff. And as we've grown, a lot of things have definitely changed since the first days of us on Pinterest versus now we are way more focused on you know getting traffic from Google, which is good and bad in a way. It's definitely a tough platform to get traffic on. There's just been a lot of you know changes over the years for where you want to get traffic, how competitive these platforms are, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where I hear you talking about how even in 2015, we were using Pinterest and Google to get traffic. And now, seven years later, we are still using those two you know platforms to to bring in a good portion of our monthly you know user base. Can you speak at all to, like I said, how the Pinterest environment or how the Google environment really, I guess, just to kind of back up a little bit. So like Pinterest is obviously organic, organic traffic in a way it's, it's free traffic that you can get through social. So social platforms, be it 
Facebook or TikTok or, or Pinterest. Can you speak at all to how things were for us on those social outlets back in 2015 versus maybe how they are now to some degree? Yeah. So actually in 2015, when we started at that point, a lot of websites had already grown really large from Facebook traffic. Facebook, maybe in like the 2012 to 2015 era was you could grow a page, like post something and then every one of your followers would see it and share yeah. it and you could get massive amounts of traffic Those from Facebook. chronological but, time yeah, were so, like super generous. Yeah. So like by the time we we started blogging, like that trend on Facebook, like Facebook became so saturated and so competitive to where when we started, you post a blog post on Facebook and 2% of your followers would see it. And it was just so hard to actually get traction or get attention to your posts. So that's why we were, you know, kind of looking at other platforms. And for us, Pinterest was one of those where we could post something and it would get much wider distribution than anything we would ever post on Facebook. I'm not a, a Pinterest user. Ben and I had never used Pinterest as consumers in our lives before then. And honestly, I still don't. It's, But I mean, it's, it was a great traffic platform back then. And nowadays, and this kind of happens with every social media platform to some extent, and it'll happen with TikTok eventually. But, you know, as time goes on, more people use the platform and it's more competitive to where it's just harder to get organic traffic on that platform. So right now, Pinterest is kind of going that same way where you're not going to get a ton of free traffic from there anymore. So nowadays, as you see a lot of bloggers going on TikTok and getting a ton of traffic from TikTok. And if you fast forward, whether it's like three years from now, five years from now, whatever, like I guarantee you it's going to be similar to how things have happened with Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest, where organic reach just gets harder and harder to come by. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that organic social is like a rapidly evolving platform or technology, I guess. These social media giants, if, if I guess if we even go back 15 years, are, are less than a decade old for the most part. And their distribution algorithms are like, quickly changing. And I think that in the early days of blogging, maybe even prior to 2015, when we started, even in the mid 2015 area, these algorithms were still being tinkered and tested as they are today, but they were very generous in the sense that distribution on Facebook, on Pinterest, on a lot of these social platforms, even Twitter was used to be chronologically based. So like, like you said, when you would put something out there, your followers would see it in like, an exact time, the exact time frame that you put it out. If they were on, they would see it. The first time that they logged back in, they would see it just because all the, the feeds were chronologically based. And now we're in this era where algorithms are engagement based. So like Facebook, Pinterest, mm -hmm. TikTok, it's one of those things where the more engaging your content is, the more frequently it's pushed out by the algorithm. And I think that that's been one mm -hmm. of the more stark differences between when we first started and where we're at now is just that recognition that that's happening and then adjusting, you know, our strategies. And we'll get into that a little bit later, adjusting our strategies to kind yeah. of cater to that ever evolving algorithm. So yeah, like I said, getting, getting yeah. back to like kind of how it was when we started versus how blogging is now, like I said, one of the most fundamental changes is obviously the distribution of algorithms on the search side of things. So it's one of those things, like I said, the, the organic social side of things is, is substantially different in the sense that the, the way algorithmic distribution still works, but a lot of like the content planning is still the same. A lot of the content strategy behind it, I guess, could be catered towards how the algorithm has changed. And that's some like a more nuanced discussion that we can get into sometime kind of about how to do perhaps content planning in light of, of the way organic social has changed, but organic social is just one piece of the puzzle. That, that was the part of the puzzle, right, Jeff, that really helped mm -hmm. us gain some traction. We 
didn't have really the budget like a lot of bloggers do when they're first starting out to kind of do paid acquisition. We couldn't do like ads, for example, to drive people to our blog. So we relied on free sources of traffic, primarily of which was organic social through Pinterest, a little bit through Facebook, a little bit through Instagram. But that's really what was available to us at the time and in, in the three kind of platforms where we found a little bit of traction. What we began to realize about a year or so in was that we started to get traffic from Google, right? So organic search, not organic social, but organic search where people were searching for, for answers to queries that they had entered into Google. And some of our blog content was, I guess, providing that answer. So Google was, was sending people our way primitively or just in small amounts at first. And it began to grow as we began to mm-hmm. learn more about organic search and how to get people or drive traffic to our site in that manner. And I'd say about what, 18 or months, 18 months or so in, mm-hmm. we really, we noticed that the articles that were doing well on Pinterest organically also started to rank well in search. Now that's not necessarily like a cause and effect relationship, but we were just happy to be getting traffic through organic search. And from 2015 until now, we have obviously spent a lot of time studying organic search. How do we appease the Google algorithm, so to speak, so that they do send traffic our way? Can you speak at all to the environment of blogging in 2015 with regards to organic search then, and maybe how we'll get into a little more nuance in this later in this discussion about how it's changed, but you know, just the, the, the major differences between then and now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for it's, obviously gotten more competitive over the years, but I think it's important to like look at Google traffic a little bit different than social media traffic in terms of you're not, you know, on Google, there's on the first page, there's only 10 results for, you know, any given query. So there's like a finite amount of real estate available and, you know, you've got everyone basically competing for that space. Now in 2015, 2016, when we started getting some traffic on Google, we were a small site that was somehow still able to, for, for a handful of articles, start ranking on that first page of Google and getting traffic. And nowadays, I think that's definitely changed. It's, there's, if in 2015, 2016, there were a thousand websites in our niche competing for those top 10 spots. Now there's 5,000 or whatever. And, you know, the top sites are a lot better at, it's just at the top of it is much more competitive. So it's not as much that the, it's not as much like the algorithms are like becoming like harder. It's, it's a more a product, I guess, of like the competition becoming harder. And then the, that in turn is making like the algorithm more selective and like who they pick to display. So there's a lot that, I mean, I guess if you want to talk about eat a little bit, that's like the big one that has, has really, you know, affected a lot of people, especially in our niche expertise, authority, and trust. And that's basically this kind of system that Google uses for, you know, queries that are related to, they call it your money, your life. So like health related stuff, or, you know, you know, your money, like investing or this kind of stuff that we write about. Google basically looks at it and says, Hey, these topics are, you know, really important. And the type of stuff that we rank for these types of queries, we have to take extra steps to make sure that we're showing really trustworthy sources. So they have more, more of their algorithm is like built out for like those niches and in particular that it's like much more stringent and they're not just going to let anybody rank for some of these keywords. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something like you said that I've noticed over the years and it's, it's kind of like a welcome change in a way. And in terms of the user experience, like when you're searching on Google, it's frustrating to get a returned result. That's like completely irrelevant, or maybe it's just like spam, completely spam, or it just comes from a source. You're like, where in the world did they get this answer from? And so what we've noticed over the years is Google's made like a concerted effort to clean up, necessarily clean up, but return the best possible result that a user would want to see when they search for a particular query. And so one of the main components of their algorithm, or not necessarily main, but a a significant portion of the weight of of what they return has to do with eat. So kind of getting back to Jeff, what Jeff was saying, expertise, authority, trust, does 
does the research result display these things? Is it written by a subject matter expert? Are they an authority in their space? Can you trust what they're saying? Uh, and because of that, there are certain queries that Jeff was alluding to, YM, YL, your money, your life, that they require an e- even higher level of EAT to kind of be surfaced on the first page of Google. And so that's been a challenge that we have been facing for the last probably about two or three years now is how do we become an authority in our space so that our content is displayed on those that coveted first page. And so that that is a something for bloggers that are starting out right now. What you may learn is that it's hard to gain traction. It's hard to get traffic either be it or through organic search or through organic social. And you, you have to spend a little bit of time kind of overcoming some of these barriers. And that's again, kind of something we'll get back to here in just a minute, but at least from the organic search side of things, it, we have basically here at Dollar Sprout anyways, worked hard to display our authority. We kind of through our blog content, we like take the time to highlight our writers, their credentials, and why they're qualified to write on a particular topic. And then we obviously make sure that when we publish a piece of content, that it's the best piece of content that we can put out there. And so those two things coupled together, we say, we kind of algorithmically, we say, here, Google, here's what we got. Is it good enough to be surfaced on that first page? And so that, like I said, that's been a challenge for us because we're not new to blogging and it's still something that we have to compete with, with the other top tier competitors in our niche. There are large personal finance companies in our space that have a lot of authority. They have highly qualified writers and trying to essentially compete with that market share is difficult. And so that is something that a newer blogger might grow frustrated by is they're, they feel like they're, they're putting out great content. They, they might be like an expert in their field. So say, for example, you're a financial advisor writing about finance, say you're a personal trainer writing about fitness, say you're a dietitian writing about some sort of fitness or wellness topic. You might feel like you're a credentialed expert in that area, but you still don't necessarily have the authority in your space yet to rank on the first page of Google. And so that is something that comes with time and it comes with consistent effort. And that, like I said, that's probably one of the biggest changes that we have really seen from 2015 to 22 now, 2022 now is that Google, Bing, Yahoo, a lot of these search engines have focused very heavily on surfacing this more authoritative content to kind of root out misinformation, to kind of weed out spam. And in that, in that little section of the algorithm, we're impacted by it because we're not as authoritative as some of the figures in our space. So it's just one of those yeah. things where, like I said, when you're first starting out and there's a finite number of ways to, to get traction and build an audience, it can be frustrating to to be excited about organic search, knowing that it's like probably the future of where your blog might be, but then not seeing the results that, mm-hmm. you're, you, that you think you should be getting, you're just not getting them yet. So let's say, let's say you want to start a blog today in one of these your money, your life spaces. Like, let's say you want to like, you know, you're a dietitian and you want to start a nutrition blog or whatever. What do you say to someone that is looking to get into that type of niche? Do you say like, go for it, good luck? Or do you try to maybe steer them to one of their other passions that might be more realistic, more feasible to rank for? If they're really into like lawn care or something where like nobody's going to die if your lawn care advice is not great. Yeah. What do you, what do you say to that person? Yeah. That it's actually a really good question just because I feel like for someone who's contemplating getting started in blogging, it is really important to be aware of, like you said, that the niche that you might be getting into, if you feel like the niche that you're interested in, or like say you are a dietitian or whatever the case may be, if you feel like the, the niche that you're interested in might fall into one of those YM, YL categories, your money, your life categories, where like, the mm-hmm. standards are a lot higher to surface and search. It definitely should give you at least not necessarily some pause, but just a moment of like reflection of what can I do differently to maybe break through down the road or at least go into that particular niche with the understanding that you may not see traction right away because of the barrier that you're going to face in terms of becoming an an authority figure in your space. So for, if, say, for example, you know, I'll just talk this out for a minute. Say you are a dietitian and you're interested in, in writing about 
ways that people can live a healthier lifestyle at home. You say you want to write blog content about healthy eating, about maybe diet plans that a particular profile of a person might need to follow. Say someone's overweight and they were looking to lose weight. Say someone is lacking in lean muscle and they want to grow muscle. You know, you're writing on topics that are intimately affected by this YMY algorithm. You know, it's going to take time to build authority in your space. And by build authority in your space, I mean, a lot of it comes down to, I guess, your web presence in a way. Once a search engine recognizes that you are an authority, say you appear throughout the web in several different ways as like a, as a credentialed dietitian, Google will start to recognize, like say you've posted not only on your own blog, but you've networked and you've interacted with other bloggers. You've maybe even written articles for like a large site at some point down, down the road, maybe written for Healthline, whatever the case may be. Google will begin to recognize that you are an authority in your space, that you are a credentialed figure and that the advice that you give is trustworthy and authoritative. And then you may see your, your ranking start to, to gain some traction in terms of your content being displayed on Google. On a cautionary note, especially in the MYMYL space, a lot of times there's like medical consensus. So if you do write on a medical topic and you're writing about opinions that go against medical consensus, that is an area where Google has been trying to weed out, I'm not necessarily, not necessarily say weed out, but it's just more difficult to, to give an opinion that goes against medical consensus and surface on Google. So people will complain of censorship, whatever the case may be. It's just a cautionary tale that if you're going to go into that space, be careful about what you're just, it's just something to be aware of, I guess. But yeah. So like, if, like I said, if you're, if you're just getting into blogging and you write in one of these topics, you really need to go in with a mindset that it's going to take probably six to 12 months to not only build your blog and build out a library of content on all the topic matters that you want to write about that in and of itself is a time consuming and difficult challenge to overcome, but then it might take you an additional six to 12 months to really work on that networking component, getting your name out there, working on like kind of press and PR opportunities so that you're seen as an authority in your space. And so it's, it's really a long, it's a long game in a sense that if you're going to create a blog and a YMYL topic, at least from the organic, the organic search side of things, you're really committing to a one to two year experience of, of mm -hmm. building your website and networking before you are really going to start to see any sort of audience building and monetization through organic search. Now you can, you could leverage TikTok, for example, and gain traction in other ways, but from specifically from the organic search side of things, it's going to be a, a tough hill to climb. So kind of getting back to your question of whether or not maybe you would want to dabble in another area, like say, for example, you are interested in like lawn care or grilling or underwater basket weaving, whatever it is that you're into, those topics don't have as much competition on Google and you might find a lot more success and maybe even a lot quicker success in terms of gaining organic traction in that regard. So just going in with a mindset that the space that you move into matters and it may, if you see blogging as a way to achieve lifestyle freedom, it's probably worth noting that you could potentially be looking at a much longer road if you move into one of these more authoritative subject areas. Whereas if you start a niche blog on how to take care of your pool during the summer, you could potentially monetize a blog much easier and much quicker going that route. Yeah. I think also one, one thing that I was just thinking of that's kind of changed a lot since when we started is back when we started, people weren't like the concept of like a, an influencer on Instagram or I mean, TikTok didn't even exist yet, but you know, the concept of like influencers, like sharing their personal lives and that sort of thing, like that was kind of just getting started. And so a lot of people, a lot of bloggers back then would kind of take that approach with like their content. They would have an art, like if you're writing, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but say you're like writing an article, teaching someone how to do something like there might be quite a bit of personal narrative within that article, kind of sharing your story behind 
whatever you're teaching or, or whatever it is. And I think nowadays that's much less common. You know, people are getting that like storytelling type of content just on social media on inside. That's my dog up there. There's a lot more of the storytelling happening on social media as opposed to blogs. So I think if you're starting a blog now, you almost more look at it as you are essentially building a, a media company rather than a personal brand. Like you can still make a personal brand that's like attached to a blog, but it's, it's much less common now. I think if you go like the personal brand kind of route, doing something like YouTube or a podcast or just sticking to Instagram and social is definitely more common than having a, a blog that's you know more of just your personal brand. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying in a way is, is that personal like storytelling and personal branding has kind of, we don't see it as frequently in the blog environment so mm-hmm. much as we are now kind of seeing it more on the organic social side of things. People are using creativity and social and storytelling to kind of build their audience on the social side. And then they're kind of figuring out how to monetize that audience, be it through a blog, maybe it's a paid course, whatever, whatever way influencers are able to get people off a social platform and either, like I said, onto a blog or, or the way that they anticipate or would like to monetize that audience. Is there anything other, I mean, is there anything else that you've seen that's really changed over the years? It could be organic social related. It could be organic search related. It could be blog content itself. I would say kind of the, like the focus on what is the value proposition of a blog? Like what, what value does a blog provide has, you know, somewhat shifted from letting, letting readers into your life or just whatever creative angle you want to take with your blog. And now I think blogs are much more, you know, widely expected to be focusing on the value of the information that you're giving. So it's, it's more about how thorough are you? How helpful are you to the reader? Like what value are you giving to the readers? And then on top of that, I think another thing that's really gone up in importance is a lot is like the user experience on your blog or your website. So good design really matters now a lot more than it did. You know, people are are getting tired of, or readers are getting tired of websites that have a ton of pop-ups and ads and links that don't work or just clunky mobile experiences. Like the, the bar is set much higher now for user experience. And that's, you know, for, for blogs that are, that want to be competitive today, you have to nail the user experience. And that's definitely become more of a requirement now than I think it was, you know, back when we started. And overall, I mean, that's a good thing. That's what, I mean, we're, we're progressing through time and that's just how it is. I mean, you know, people want better stuff and that's just how it goes. I think another thing that I've noticed is with the rise of social media influencers, especially on Instagram, like the general public now is much more aware and familiar with what affiliate marketing is and sponsorships and like that sort of thing. So I think maybe back when we started, it would be pretty easy to throw an affiliate link here or there. And like people might not realize that it's an advertisement, even if you, you know, disclose it or whatever, which you're supposed to, you know, your, your average reader back then wasn't really familiar with like the concept of, Oh, Hey, if I click this link, like this website's going to make money or that they're only writing this because or nowadays, I think a lot of people will, if they look at an Instagram post where an influencer is holding up like a protein shake with some brand that is paying them, I think consumers are much more aware now that like, okay, this is a sponsorship. Like, is this truly what they're recommending or are they just doing it to get paid? And I think that there's a lot more skepticism among readers and consumers, which I think, again, is ultimately a good thing. But it just sets the bar higher for if you are going to do affiliate marketing, you want to do your own research on the product, make sure it's something that you truly believe in and really feel comfortable, you know, recommending to your your readers. I think that seven years ago, it wasn't as important as it is now, but I do think it's a good thing that it's become more prevalent. It's one of those things where, like you said, monetization has certainly changed in 
consumers are, are shrewd in a sense. They, they're not going to be duped forever. And I think that we've certainly recognized that even in our own content that sometimes you've always hear the phrase honesty is the best policy, but in a lot of ways, like I think consumers appreciate transparency and I think it provides like a better user experience as well. So when we, we obviously have a, an, very heavy affiliate marketing focus on our blog content. It's that's the way that we monetize our blog for the most part. But we also know that readers don't appreciate being lied to or like misled or finding out that there was an ulterior motive all along and then becoming jaded with with the fact that the website that they were just on recommended something and they didn't necessarily disclose it. So we have like obviously tried to adapt with with that as well and just be becoming more i don't want to say more forthcoming we've always been forthcoming we just want readers to know that they can come to us as a trusted source of information and while we will endorse or or even offer like product comparisons like the the research that went behind the but the behind those recommendations was legitimate it was unbiased and it it genuinely reflects the user's best interest and i think that that's something that You'll start to see even on social, be it an influencer or whatever the case may be, is that influencers are going to start to get called out when they recommend a product that isn't actually mm -hmm. good. And people are going to recognize that and they're going to not necessarily turn on them, yeah. but there's definitely going to be a portion of the population that sours on that particular influencer if they find out that they're just being mm -hmm. a shill for a particular company. And we, yeah. we don't want that to happen to our blog. And so we are taking like proactive steps and we tried to proactively display if and when we are recommending a product that we feel like our users would benefit from. All right. Mm -hmm. So a couple of questions for so, you here to wrap up. Yeah. So say getting back to that, I like that uh, point that you brought up earlier about what would you do if you were a new blogger or, or someone that maybe mm -hmm. is been blogging for a little while, but it's looking to gain traction. My first question for you is other than organic search and organic social, the two free platforms that are not constrained by budget. Other ways that you feel like new bloggers can gain traction, or do you feel like those two areas are the best two ways for, for bloggers to gain traction and they just need to spend time thinking, either thinking outside of the box, or really they don't need to invent anything new at all and they just need to learn how to execute in terms of audience building, getting that initial traffic. Yeah. Do you think that people should be going to like the old mainstays of organic search and organic social? Do you think they should be looking mm -hmm. outside the box? Give me your thoughts on that. That's a tough question. And I think it, a lot of it, it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's like you, I, I still think that what's most important for a new blogger isn't finding your first hundred readers or something. I think it's becoming a master at creating high quality content because that is going to be, if you have, like, say you go viral on Twitter or whatever to like one of your blog posts, but then like your blog posts, like kind of like your email signup link doesn't work or you're like, you don't even have ads set up yet or the grammar's choppy. You've got typos. Like if you, if you don't have a well polished product, then it doesn't matter how much traffic you get because it's not going to last. So I think like right now, and this is something that has not changed since when we first started was content quality is like still the most important part, I think. And I think that should be like every new bloggers, like first priority is like learn how to make a, it doesn't have to be a fancy website, but it has to be a, a polished website that is like clean and easy to use and make sure your writing is good you know, have other people read your content, like actually give you feedback on like, hey, I got bored during this paragraph or like this sentence doesn't make sense or, or whatever. Because no matter how many times you read your own stuff, there's, there's going to be stuff that you don't catch. So I think like building that skill is the most important thing. And then because that, that's the skill that, that doesn't go away is like the importance of that. Like all these other platforms and algorithms, they change over time. But like, the skill of like making good content is by far still the most important thing. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would agree. I think that if you hope to succeed in the long term, it's one of those things where creating, ep I don't say the word epic, but creating like solid content is, is kind of like the, 
foundational brick to your blog. I think that organic from an organic search perspective, you can optimize that content for search engines and for readers so that you can make the most of, of that Mm. avenue of audience building in the future. And then furthermore, like you said, it's all well and dandy to to maybe have a single blog post that does well on Twitter or on Pinterest or on Facebook or on TikTok. But if there's no stickiness to it, if there's no way for consumers to come back to your site over and over, then that traction that you got on that social platform is likely going to eventually end and you don't have anything to show for it. And Mm -hmm. creating high quality content that a user can appreciate, interact with, engage with, and then creating some stickiness to it, be it some sort of lead generation. If you, when you eventually get into email marketing and that kind of thing, finding a way for, to bring your readers back to you and your value proposition is exactly that. What do you, what do you offer to the, to the reader that'll keep them coming back for more? But yeah, like you said, Mm -hmm. I think it's not necessarily focusing on, on Facebook or focusing on our, our search. It's Let's, let's build the pillar stones of our, our site first. And that will mm-hmm. hopefully be enough. Not hopefully be yeah. enough. That's like the foundation of getting everything started. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like tempering those expectations of a blog is not something that is like a blog as a whole is not something that really can go viral nowadays. It's not like you have like some influencers will just pop up out of nowhere and become huge on social media, like on Instagram or something like that. That happens. Sure. But with blogging, it it really doesn't happen. So it's almost like when you go into it back when we started, I think a reasonable expectation was six to 12 months before seeing results. And part of that six to 12 months, a lot of it is learning the skill of creating content, but then also getting traction on social media or getting traction on Google. So I think now like maybe the the time expectations might be a little bit higher. I would say give yourself one to two years. And that's definitely daunting, I think, when you first hear it. But I think that it's that there's still such an asymmetric potential reward for your time. It's you can still go, even if you start today, you could go Two years from now, you could be making $20,000 a month from your blog. But, you know, two years down the road is a long time. But, I mean, that's not that long in the grand scheme of things, especially if you start making 20 grand a month from your website. So I think, and this is something I was explaining to, to my wife, Paige, the other day, is when you decide to become an entrepreneur and especially one that has their business online. It's like, you're never really fairly paid for your time. You're either going to be vastly underpaid or like vastly overpaid. So the first one to two years can be vastly underpaid because, you know, you might not make any money and you're putting in hundreds, if not thousands of hours into this business. But then you fast forward to two years later and, you know, you're spending five to 10 hours a week on your site and it's now making 20 grand a month or whatever it is because of that work that you put in before. So now you make five, you work five to 10 hours a week and you make 20 grand a month. That's like unreal. Like, like no one really should be ever getting paid that much, but that's kind of like the nature of these online businesses. So it's almost like you have to like disconnect your time from the money in a way, because it's never going to be like, something that makes sense. You're either going to get paid nothing for your time or like way too much. I think you're you're dead on in the sense that I think that's one of the maybe perhaps more discernible differences between a lifestyle business and like a scalable lifestyle business. And by that, I mean, Mm -hmm. say for example, you are a editor at for a print magazine or something like that, you know, your, the time that you put in directly correlates to your hourly pay in a way. And then you could have, you could be an editor for an online magazine and, and have that same correlation and have some element of lifestyle freedom in the sense that you get to work from home. You get to enjoy being, spending time with your family. You're still getting paid on like an hourly basis, but you have already achieved some level of lifestyle freedom in the sense that you're not committed to getting up every day and going to work. I think that something that a lot of people really desire is to that element of scalability where they, they can create 
a business or or a lifestyle where income isn't directly correlated to the time that they put in. And with blogging specifically, mm-hmm. you're going to put in a lot of time early on that has no correlatable income. You're going to, like Jeff was saying, mm-hmm. four to six to even 12 months of hundreds of hours worth of work that lays the foundation for success down the road. And then you might get an inordinate return on your time or your time on investment down the road. But that's that's something that that discipline and that patience can be wildly frustrating. And so this kind of leads into my very last question for you. And that is mm-hmm. for someone who does struggle with that ability to commit a lot of time and effort without seeing any return, is there, let's mm-hmm. say you're a new blogger and you you would desperately could use some income. Is there a, mm-hmm. a particular monetization stream that might be a little bit easier for a newer blogger to dabble in. So like we've talked about affiliate marketing, we've talked about courses, that kind of stuff. If you are depending on it, where would you say start? I think, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me that I've seen work for a lot of bloggers that are just getting started is do freelance work on the side okay. for for other sites. So like let's say you you're working on starting like your food blog, but then let's say you have a, you you can go on sites like Upwork or Fiverr or even go in like Facebook groups and find other bloggers that are willing to pay content writers for content. So if you know you're working on your own food blog, but then let's say you write three articles a month for another food blog Mm -hmm. for $300 or something like that. You know, that's a way to, you're really doing a lot there. I mean, you're, you're making money, which is great because you're not going to make money for a while if you're just only doing your own thing, but you're also learning a lot about like you're becoming a better writer in the process just from more repetition and you're learning kind of more depending on like who you work with, like how other sites like editorial process works, mm-hmm. what their process is for coming sure. up with content. So, and, and that is extremely valuable. Like when you go back to your own blog, it's kind of like to work on it. ethical cheating in a way, in the sense that you, yeah. you get to see yeah, how another paid. site in your niche is operating, depending on how much they share with you about their content creation yeah. process. And then you can apply, not necessarily copy, but apply many of those same systems and principles into creating your own content. So it's like an inside mm-hmm. view into what other people in your niche are doing. And plus you're getting paid to create content for them. So beyond other than freelancing on the side, is there any other sort of income stream that you feel might help um, kind of bridge that gap down the road? I mean, I, I know that people making online courses and whatnot are are very popular nowadays. I mean, that's still for, in order for that to be successful, you have to still have an audience and to have an audience, you're not just going to have an audience if all you have is a paid course. So you still need free, free content out there. I, I, I really think that, that the freelancing is the best route to go if you want to start pulling in money now. I, I do think there's nothing wrong with getting in the habit of like, or working on getting affiliate offers in your content, even if you don't have a big audience, you know, signing up for any of these affiliate networks out there like CJ or impact, or there's, there's dozens of them that you sign up on these sites and then you can get set up with different affiliate offers with brands in your space. Recommending products. So, you know, yeah. So if you start recommending products in your content and just kind of getting used to setting it up to where it, you know, it, is authentic and it looks good and it's not just like you're randomly blurting out products in the middle of your blog posts. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely a kind of a fine line. The product still ultimately um, has to help the user solve a problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think it, there's nothing wrong with getting started with that. Like from the get go, it's just, you're not going to see a ton of results right away just because your traffic is, is going to be low. But, you know, once you start getting that traction, then, you know, you've already got that foundation in place. Yeah. I think, like you said, I think the barrier to entry for affiliate marketing, it might be a little bit lower than that of creating a course right off the get go, just because Mm -hmm. not only does it require an audience to sell a course, but you also have to learn how to market your course. And there's a Mm -hmm. host of other things that go into it. That's not necessarily that it's, it, it can be a very lucrative, like 
information courses can be very lucrative for the course seller down the road, but there's just, it seems like there's a larger barrier to entry than just creating good content. And if that content happens to solve a problem with a product for a reader, then that can be like this mutually beneficial relationship between your, your readers where you've solved one of their problems. You've recommended a product that might help them do that. And then you may receive a commission and income that way. So like you said, I think I like, I like the tiered approach of, Let's let's freelance. Let's create some digital income in that regard. Let's learn more about the processes that go into blogging, especially if there's like the benefit that it may help me on my own site. You you're all the while you're learning how to create very good content that you may be able to incorporate some affiliate marketing, and then you kind of branch out from there as you begin to learn and master more skills. But anyways, so just tying this all up, Jeff, Mm -hmm. what's your verdict? Do you feel like that it is still worth it in terms of like side hustles? How do you see blogging fit in to a side, like a lay users or lay readers side side hustle repertoire as opposed to something else that they might be able to make income more quickly? Who is blogging for? I think blogging is for someone who is looking for an alternative career that they can start building now that there's a potential for them to go into that career or that that business full-time in one to two years. I don't think that blogging as a side hustle is... I think there's nothing wrong with working on it as a side hustle as you're you know starting out. But I think even the term side hustle, it kind of comes with the expect- expectation that you're going to be pulling in some kind of money. So if you're if you sign up to drive with Uber, that's a side hustle and you're making money like today. That's not the case with blogging. But I think that you can start a blog today, like on the side of your nine to five job. And as long as your expectations are that, hey, this is not a side hustle in the sense that like I'm going to be making money right away, but this is a a hustle on the side that could lead to something life-changing. And and in that sense, I think it's definitely blogging is not dead. You know, that is still a very like viable career slash business option for somebody. And I think knowing what I know today, I think if I were to, let's say we never started Dollar Sprout, we had never blogged before, I would still start a blog today and I still think it's worth it. It's harder, it's more competitive, all that stuff. But, you know, it's definitely, it can still very much be worth it. And then also by doing, by starting a blog, even if it never really amounts to anything down the road, let's say two years later, you start really getting traction and you kind of just want to throw in the towel, you're still learning so many core business fundamentals just by doing this. You're learning how to write, which 99% 99% of people are not good at. You're learning how to like market your content. You're learning about why people buy the things that they buy, why they don't buy, why they trust certain sites over others. You know, you're learning all this stuff that will translate into so many other careers. Like let's say in two years, your blog isn't working, but you decide, okay, I'm actually going to be a YouTuber. Like I'm way more comfortable on camera. I'm not as good at writing, whatever you still have so many of those skills that you've learned from blogging that can then translate to YouTube. Or let's say you want to start your own lawn care company like in your town or something. I just say lawn care because I'm looking at my yard out the window. <laughs> um, like if you want to start like a, a landscaping business, you now, because of blogging, like you know how to build a website, you know how to at least at some basic level get the word out about your content, about all of that. So like you're you're way better positioned for success even if you end up doing something outside of blogging. So that that's kind of how I look at it is it's it, it can lead to something huge if your blog becomes successful and if it doesn't become successful it's still worth it because of what you get out of it that can be applied later on. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. And it's something actually that we've probably even talked about in the past. It's like if Dollar Sprout failed today, what would you do in terms of, you know, would you go seek a job out? Would you try to start your own lifestyle business, whatever the case may be? And it's it's neat in so many ways because we have, be it self-taught or through courses, we've learned so many skills over the years that I feel like either one of us would be a capable entry-level 
SEO. So like a search engine optimization mm -hmm. specialist for like maybe a corporate company, I feel like we could quickly demonstrate proficiency in a lot of basic marketing skills and work on a marketing team if need be. So it's like, this has truly been like a life-changing experience beyond just the financial component of it. It's I've learned so many skills that can help run a, an online business that I never need, I likely never need to join the in-person workforce ever again if I didn't want to. I feel like mm -hmm. I could approach a team and say, I want to work remotely, especially given today's job environment. And these are my skills. Here is my demonstrated proficiency at running this website. Here's like our concrete tangible numbers that we performed with. And that's like, that is like such a reassuring. That's a resume. Yeah. It's such a reassuring thing in a way because being able to show people that you've done this is, and you've learned it, it's, it's a really cool feeling. And not just for us. I know that one of the pieces of content that we wrote recently was we wanted to f go out and find bloggers that had started within the last one year and see where they were at in their income journey. And these are, we've had like a coffee niche site. We had like a sewing site. We had a recipe site. We had about half a dozen bloggers. I'll, I'll even see if I can include the post in the show notes of people that started within the last one year and were already consistently making four figures of income within the first 12 months. Now, four figures of income is a lot of income. Some of these people were yeah. making five figures of income in their first year. Now that's, they're probably in the top 1%. Not every blogger that starts will do that and perform that well. But there is one, I guess the best takeaway here is that all of them started with a very deliberate and concrete plan for how they wanted to accomplish their income goals. And to achieve that, they executed on these plans. So it's like I said, I highly recommend the post. I'll, I'll, I'll link to it here in the show notes. They all had a strategy. They all executed very well on that strategy. And they, and they were already making four figures of income in the first 12 months, which I thought was really cool because it speaks to the fact that blogging as a concept is clearly not dead. It's things have changed. How do we execute differently now in light of those changes? Are we going to sit here and try strategies that people have been trying for five years? Are we going to try to maybe niche down and focus on a very particular topic area and find success within that area. And I think that is also a commonality too, that, you know, a lot of times niche blogs are maybe overperforming in comparison to, to non-niche blogs. But again, a topic for another day. I appreciate mm. you joining me, Jeff. And yeah, like I said, this is fun. If, if you guys have any questions, feel free to drop, drop them in the dollar spot blogging group. We, Jeff and I are in there all the time. We're happy to answer them. If you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, be it, a blogging topic in particular, it could be courses, it could be search engine optimization, it could be creating the epic content that we kind of discussed in this show, whatever it may be, feel free to, to, to drop that in the, in the, in mm -hmm. the blogging group. We are, we're here for you guys and we just want to help out. Yeah. But cool. Awesome. man. Well, it was good talking to you and I will see you later. Yep. Appreciate it. See ya. See ya. Bye.